Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We've been in John's Gospel for the last several months together as we study the life and the person and the work of Jesus. And today we're going to switch over to Luke's Gospel because we realize that uh, as we enter this Advent season, we can understand Jesus through the lens of several different Gospel writers. And so we're going to do that this morning. We're going to take a few steps back in Jesus' life and show up before he was born to anticipate Christmas. And we're going to follow Luke as he studies Jesus, as he lets us understand Jesus for the next several months that we're together. So let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 1, and I'm going to pray for us this morning. Lord, we rejoice. We are like Mary sitting here, overwhelmed at the idea that you have come and you have come in the flesh And we get to celebrate that all month long and party and rejoice and invite friends into this celebration. Lord, I pray that this morning you would just allow us to attend to your word, that you would fill our heart with excitement as we think about these things. Teach us, O Lord, we ask in your name. Amen. In Luke chapter 1, Mary gives this very familiar praise, and I want to read it for us. It's in Luke 1, starting in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is Mary's song as she thinks about what it means to give birth to the Savior, to give birth to the Messiah. And it's striking how full of Scripture this song really is. If we had time, and if you have time this afternoon, to open up 1 Samuel chapter 2, where we find Hannah celebrating that her son Samuel has come, and you lay that 1 Samuel 2 next to Luke chapter 1, you will see that Hannah's song and Mary's song are very similar. There's a bunch of parallels between them. And not only that, but there's many other texts in the Old Testament that that Mary points to and draws out as she sings this song. So I love this picture. I mean, here you have this young girl, Mary. She's probably about 15 years old. She's not very well-to-do. She's not from a well-known place. She's from the the sticks in, in Galilee from a place called Nazareth. And when she thinks about what God is doing, her mind fills with God's word. She knows God's word and it just comes out of her as she expresses this praise. She knows this and it fills her praise. And what that does when Mary does that is it just kind of gets us out of a rut. You know, so often we speak about, we pray about, we talk about, we sing about our faith in such a rut. We, We kind of locate the same phrases, the same words, and we use them again and again and again. And that's okay, but sometimes there's a staleness to the way we describe the gospel, right? Doesn't that happen to all of us? If you don't believe me, come over to our house for dinnertime prayers, and you will see uh, a, a rut of trying to get our family, myself included, out of just saying the same things again and again and again. Well, Mary does that for us. We were studying John for the last couple of months, and I think if you would have cornered John and if you would have explained Twitter to him, 
He would have said, John, look, there's something coming that's incredible. It's microblogging. You get 140 characters. John would have said, that's stupid. I'll never do it. You'd say, that's besides the point. What I'm talking about is, John, how would you express the gospel if you only had 140 characters to do it? I know you wrote a whole gospel. How would you just express it in your own words in one sentence? Here's what I think John would say if he had to say it. The Father gives eternal life to those who believe in Jesus. The Father gives eternal life to those who believe in Jesus. That's very John-esque. Because John's favorite description of God is what? The Father. He's going to say the Father. He loves to talk about eternal life. That comes up again and again in his gospel. You better believe he's going to use the word believe because that's on every single page of John's gospel. So if you were to ask John, that's how he'd express the gospel. Well, think about this. We're talking about the same good news of Jesus come to take our sin from us. But if you would have cornered Mary and you would have asked her the same thing, I think she would articulate the gospel in a very different way. Same exact gospel, but to use her own words, Mary would say, the Lord shows mercy to the humble. That's how Mary would express the gospel. The Lord shows mercy to the humble. And and I'm taking that right from Luke 1. And what we're going to do today is we're going to break down every phrase of that sentence. The Lord shows mercy to the humble. And those three phrases are going to be the way we look at Luke chapter 1. So let's do that. Mary talks about the Lord and she gives us new ways to think about him. When she finds out this good news, when she visits with Elizabeth, she's, she's full of praise. Her heart wells up in praise. And she says in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. She's giddy. She's joyful. This, this worship is coming from within. There's a kind of worship we can do with our mouths. And then there's a kind of worship that comes from our spirit and our soul because we are so excited and so full. So listen to Mary's living relationship with the Lord. Just listen to some of the ways she describes God in this, in this passage. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He has shown his great strength with his arm and exalted those in humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, mercy as he spoke to our fathers. Now, we know that God is spirit. When you talk about God, you are talking about a spirit who doesn't have a body. He doesn't have bodily features. So when we imagine in our minds an old man with a long beard reclining, that's Gandalf. That's not God. That's an easy, you know, confusion to make. But that, that's not who God is because God is spirit. So it's amazing how many times in the Old Testament God uses physical descriptors about himself, right? You read in the Old Testament and God's talking about his arm and his hand and his eye and his head. The poetic term for that is anthropomorphism. God is using bodily features to describe himself, to to teach us something about himself. And Mary picks up on that. She knows that that's what God does. And so listen to all the bodily descriptions she gives God. Verse 48, he has looked. So we know that God has eyes to see. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arms. So God has arms to show strength. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. He has hands to feed. 54, he has helped in remembrance of his mercy. God has a mind to remember. Verse 55, as he spoke to our fathers, God has a mouth to speak. Mary is doing what the Old Testament taught her to do. She's celebrating the majestic God and the personal touch that he gives. She's imagining his help as actual bodily assistance. Really what Mary is doing, and this is more than she knows, is she's imagining God's help 
as it will come to her in her son Jesus. Because all of those physical descriptions of an Old Testament God as spirit find their home and their fulfillment in Jesus, the Messiah come. Jesus takes on body and blood and flesh and arms and eyes and becomes everything that Mary and the Old Testament writers long to see in God. He becomes that very thing. Man, I love to watch parents with newborn babies. That's just such a, just a fun time to see uh, people celebrate the birth of a new baby. I, I'll, I'll just forever remember the birth of both of our kids. Judah, who's six now, um, was born when we were in Pennsylvania. I was in my first week of seminary, and I was on call. My, my wife was great with child, um, so I knew she was going to call at any moment. And I was sitting in my very first advanced Greek class, sweating as I got that syllabus, knowing that I was doomed for the semester. And I get a call on the phone while I'm in the middle of class. And sure enough, it's Julie. And I did what any first-year seminarian would do. I put the phone on silent. And I sat through the rest of my Greek class just to capture what I needed to know. And then I flew back home. We flew to the hospital. And I was there for my son's birth. Um, But just that time of Judah being born and Ami being born. And just, you know, you're studying the hands and the feet and the limbs. And everything on this baby is brand spanking new. It's it's factory-issued No nicks or dings. I mean, what we wouldn't do to trade in some of our things for fresh hands and fresh feet. But our babies have them, and we just like to celebrate that and look at that. You know, Christmas is actually a time for us to get to do that with Jesus. Because Jesus comes to us, and he comes to us as a baby. And we get to spend time this month just ooing and eyeing over every feature of Jesus. Because everything Mary says in this song of praise finds its home in Jesus. Mary celebrates that God has eyes to see. Jesus has eyes to see. We watch him in the Gospels. He's the one who notices people in the Gospels. The Samaritan woman at the well, the crippled man at the pool, the man who has a withered hand in the back of the synagogue. Jesus is the one who has eyes to see and notice them. Jesus has arms of strength. We see him gather his flock to himself. We see him protect the man who is born blind. Jesus has hands to feed. He feeds the 5,000 and he tells them, I give you bread, but I'm also your bread. Jesus has a mind to remember as Mary celebrates because Luke is the only gospel that will record the thief on the cross saying to Jesus, what? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus has a mind to remember and Jesus has a mouth to speak as he grows up and begins his preaching ministry to speak words of grace to the crowd. Come all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Jesus has these things. All of this finds its fulfillment in him. Take this passage, take Luke 1, put it in your cubicle, put it by your kitchen sink and celebrate this as your liturgy this month. This gives you new expressions and new ways to think about your God. Every part of him comes to every need of yours for his own glory. That's what he does. That's the God that we serve. Celebrate him. Well, Mary goes on. The Lord, that's who the Lord is. He shows mercy. God saves. He forgives our sin. He calls us his child. He grants us eternal life. And, and, and our salvation is so full and free that the Bible has a thousand ways to talk about it. Bible calls it being born again or being raised from the dead or, or a new creation. 
Listen to some of the ways Mary would talk about salvation. She talks about God's salvation as like being seen in verse 48. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. You know, if it's true that Mary knew her Old Testament well, and if it's true that Mary as a young girl kind of resonated with young moms in the Old Testament, then Mary must have known the story of Hagar in Genesis chapter 16. Hagar, of course, had a child by Abraham, Ishmael. And when he was born, Sarah, Abraham's wife, treated her harshly and sent her away. So she was kind of banished from the household. And she came into a very difficult place where she thought she was going to die. And God shows up and he saves Hagar. And he speaks words of mercy to her. And Hagar becomes the first woman in the Bible to name God. In Genesis chapter 16, verse 13, she says, You are the God of seeing. You found me. I was lost and you found me. You are the God of seeing. And Mary picks up on that and says, Salvation is like being found by God. He sees us to save us. This might be the first note of salvation you need to hear this Advent or your neighbor needs to hear this Advent. Sometimes we lead in sharing the gospel with talking about Jesus is the one who forgives our sins. And that's true. And that needs to be said. But sometimes we need to hear that Jesus sees us. Could that be what your heart needs to hear? Could that be what your neighbor needs to hear? Do you know what? God sees you. He sees where you're at. He sees your frustration. He sees your fear. He sees your anxiousness. He sees your depression. God sees you and he meets with you. That's a word of salvation. That's a word of grace. And Mary picks up on that. Well, she also says God's salvation is like being fed in verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things. That's in 1 Samuel 2, 5, where Hannah says almost the same thing. Those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. Psalm 34, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. John six thirty five that we study, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Salvation satisfies, says Mary. It's like a full belly. It's like a spring in your step. To be found by God is like being fed by him. What, what wonderful ways to begin to think about our salvation in, in, in different notes than we often talk about it and think about it. If we are found by God, if we are fed by him, we never need to hunger again. We don't need to be hungry for identity or mercy or grace or love from another. We've been found by God and we've been filled by him and we are full. The Lord, he shows his mercy. Well, Mary goes on, the Lord shows mercy, but to whom? Who gets the mercy of God? No doubt when I read this thing, you saw this gulf uh, begin to emerge between those who get mercy and those who don't get God's mercy, those who don't receive God's mercy. There are those who get mercy. Our text says this, he's looked on the humblest state of his servant. His mercy is for those who fear him. He has filled the hungry with good things. But then there's this camp that doesn't get mercy. They are not found by the mercy of God. And he says this, he has scattered the proud. He has brought down the mighty, the rich. He has sent away empty. Have you ever thought about the way Mary is describing these two camps of people? Because it gets really awkward really fast because it kind of sounds like Mary is saying those who are well-to-do, those who are influential, those who are, are born from noble families, they don't get saved. Uh, isn't that what it sounds like she's saying here? 
And I'd like to dismiss her and just say, you know, Mary's this wide-eyed, impressionable 15-year-old. She's trying to make sense of what it means to be a poor girl in Galilee. And and so she leans in that direction. Uh, But Luke is not going to let us out of this tension as quickly as we might like. Because this is going to come up as we'll preach again and again and again in Luke's gospel. We're going to find this theme throughout Luke's gospel more than any other place in the Bible. Jesus will announce his ministry in Luke chapter 4 from Isaiah saying, The Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to who? Who does does he proclaim good news to? To the poor, he says. That's who I come. The Beatitudes in Luke chapter 6 say, Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry now. And later he'll say, but woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full now. Later in the parable of the banquet, describing uh, the, the great banquet feast of heaven in Luke chapter 14, the master of the house, he invites people to his banquet, people we would expect him to invite. And those people make excuses. And so what does Jesus do? What does the, the, the banquet leader do? He says, forget those people I invited. I want you to go into the highways and the byways, and I want you to find the crippled and the lame and the blind and the poor, and they are the ones who will come to my banquet. What on earth is Jesus talking about? And what is Mary picking up on here and talking about as well? Do they mean the physically poor or do they mean the spiritually poor? That's a trick question. Are they talking about those who are just physically poor or those who are spiritually poor? Now, if I was a liberation theologian, we can talk about what that means afterwards. I would say Mary is talking 100% physically. She literally means rich people will be judged and poor people will be saved. If you're rich, if you've had your good things in this life, that's it for you. And if you're poor and you have, have worked hard to make ends meet, then you'll be saved. Now, if I were a bizarre brand of conservative fundamentalism, I'd say the exact opposite. I would say this is 100% spiritual. It's just a coincidence that we're using rich and poor language because we really just mean the rich in spirit, as in the proud, they won't be saved. But the poor in spirit, as in the humble, they will be saved. Is it 100% physical or 100% spiritual? I think by asking those questions, we're trying to wrestle out of a tension that Luke is giving us to dwell in. We're trying to get the heck out the back door, and Luke is saying, no, I want you to dwell with the fact that I am describing those who will be saved as the poor and those who will not be saved as the rich and the haughty and the well-to-do. And I want you to dwell in that tension and woe to the preacher who dismisses that with a two-minute explanation. We can't do that this morning, and so we need to wade into what he's talking about. And I think the reason Luke gives us this tension, and let's be very careful here when we understand this, the reason he won't let our arm go when we're talking about this is because Mary and Jesus realize these two things go hand in hand. The humble of heart lead humble lifestyles. Those who are humble of heart lead a humble life. Those things go so hand to glove that we can dwell in this tension of saying it's the hungry who will be filled. It's the poor who will be made rich in Christ. The Lord shows mercy to the humble. He shows mercy to the needy. He shows people who know that they need grace, who have come to the end of themselves and they've said, I have nothing to offer. I need your grace and I need your mercy. That's who the Lord shows mercy to. 
That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For grace you have been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. But those kind of people who have received that mercy, who are humble of heart and who realize their neediness, they will lead humble lifestyles. Anytime the Bible talks about the rich, I think most of us in this room probably start thinking about somebody else, right? We think about that person, that neighbor, that rich uncle. He's got a beach house. He's got a lake house. He's got a hunting lodge. He's got a poker table covered in tiger skin. Whatever you do with money, that's what they're doing, and that ain't me. According to New Testament standards, biblical standards, every single person in this room is rich. According to global standards, every single one of us in this room is rich. We are. And so we can't just kind of juke our way out of the Bible talking about wealthy people. Every one of us, myself included, are in this camp. And so let me ask a question. Can people who make a lot of money, comparatively, you and I, and have a lot of influence, comparatively, you and I, be saved? What would Jesus say to that? Absolutely, of course they can be saved. Um, Jesus says everyone who humbles themselves will be exalted. Humility is not your position or your paycheck. It's your posture. It's coming to Christ needy. It's coming to him and, and pleading for his salvation. It's grace. It's all grace. And the Bible is chock full of stinking wealthy people who are believers, who walk with God, who have been found by him and filled by him. It's full of them. Now, let me rephrase the question. Now, according to Luke's gospel, can a person who makes a lot of money, comparatively, you and I, have a lot of influence, comparatively, you and I, be saved? In other words, a person who's well-to-do and turns that wealth into building themselves up and exalting themselves and building a world around themselves, can that kind of wealthy and influential person be saved? And Jesus would say, yeah, that person can be saved. But it's actually harder for a that person to be saved than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle because a humble of heart leads to a humble lifestyle. Those two things go hand in hand. This is the first Sunday of our Advent, and it reminds us of the gospel. And this is how Mary articulates the gospel. The Lord shows mercy to the humble. You know, this is about the time that we start to do our Christian mantra where we say, remember the reason for the season. Remember the reason for the season. When you're inundated with the physical, you get the advertisements, you get the red Starbucks coffee cups, you get the gifts, you get the treats. All of these physical things surround us remind ourselves of the spiritual, right? That's what we tell each other. Well, Mary actually counterbalances this notion. And she says to us, don't over-spiritualize your Christmas this year. Remember the physical. We're telling each other, remember the spiritual. Mary's saying, look, I want you to pause and remember the physical. Don't spiritualize away what Jesus is coming to do because he is coming to bring a kingdom that literally and physically realigns the way we think about money and power and influence and where we spend our time and who we hang out with and who's important and who comes to our dinner table and who we accept in our circle. All of those physical things Jesus comes to address in his kingdom. Whatever you do, do not over-spiritualize the incarnation of the Son of God. Jesus was not born in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. 
Do we get that? Jesus wasn't born in a manger because he couldn't find space in an inn. It wasn't like God in heaven was scratching his head and saying, really, the one time I send my son, I've been planning this for eternity past, to come and be born. Travelocity is book solid. We can't get a room in Bethlehem. We've got to go to the manger. Jesus was born in the manger because that's the kind of Jesus he is, and that's the kind of worshipers he's looking for. Those who are humble of heart, and humble of lifestyle, who receive the Savior that shows mercy to the humble, who understand their desperate neediness, and they let that neediness for the gospel flow out of their hands and feet. That's the physicality of Christmas. That's what Mary is talking about here. I I, I wonder what tangible ways you and I and our families can celebrate this kind of Advent, the physical aspect of Advent. What does it look like for us to think about and dwell on and rejoice in all the different ways that God talks about his salvation, especially as as Mary talks about it here? And what does it look like to share this celebration with others spiritually and physically? Let's pray together. Jesus, we're astounded by this description of you. You are the Lord who shows mercy for the humble. What a sweet word of grace to us that we can run to you in all of our neediness and be filled by you. And what a word of caution to us that you call humble worshipers who are humble of heart and humble of lifestyle. And you long to teach us through what your son Jesus did. Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts to receive this and obey this. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.